Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guest today is Gunia Shaib from Tunisia, a former BBC Arabic service journalist, freelance writer and a mentor at the ALC. Uh, Munira, you've just uh, written a book called Is Every Cab Driver Called Roger? Why did you uh, pick such a title for the book? Okay, thank you, Desmond, for the opportunity um, on your program. Um, I chose the title because the story yes. of Roger is one of the anecdotes, and the, the book is about, you know, anecdotes and um funny stories, if you like, that, you know, as journalists, we encounter in our, in the line of our work, whether, you know, from the office or abroad, but mainly abroad. I don't want to give too much away about the book. I want people to read it. Uh, but I would, I would say, yeah, I would say that I chose the title so that it's, um, it makes people wonder and want to read it because, as you know, readership of real books, you know, uh, has gone down globally. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to attract people's attention and and raise their curiosity as to what is this book about. Yes, indeed. Actually, it is an interesting book. I've read it. Uh, you come from Tunisia, from North Africa, where uh, women like you would not go this fast, professional. Uh, so how, how did you cope with that sort of pressure in, 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 in Tunisia when you had to leave to come to the UK to join the BBC and that sort of thing? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I come from, you can say, a conservative society and conservative family. Not so conservative, but the expectation is that, you know, uh, the, the girls would follow certain rules and uh, behaviors where, you know, you only go to school or university and you come home, uh, yes. you know, at a certain time. Um, boys, you know, had more freedom, if you like. The expectation is that because a boy is a boy, then he can, you know, uh, disappear the whole day and come back whenever he feels like. As for traveling, you know, it was uh, for a career or even to study, um, it was not the the done thing where a girl leaves the family unit without being married or um, at least engaged first. So it was it was a big thing. And I, I I'm not even the eldest of my siblings. I'm right in the middle. I had two brothers who are older than me and an older sister. And um, you know, um, my family was taken aback, and it was a a big challenge for my mum in particular because. In my extended family, um, it's only me and my two sisters who made it all the way to university. So, yes. you know, she felt like we were under the watchful eyes of my aunties, especially from my father's side, yes. uh, to see if we, we make any mistakes so that that can be easily a topic of gossip and scorn and, you know, doubting my mom's ability to raise us properly, if you like, between quotation marks, that is. So it was, it was a big thing. So yeah, but it, for me, it was, it was probably the biggest step I had ever taken in my entire life, moving countries and continents, you know, to come and live and work uh, in the big city that is London from, it was a, a big leap from being sheltered by my large family to, to come and live 
all by myself in London, uh, you know, uh, moving from, you know, this young girl who just went to university and went home back home every day to be totally an independent adult, depending on myself, doing everything by myself. And you know how, you know, how uh, hard life can be in London for a young person in their own country to come and settle here. But but you eventually came because you had the blessing of your family, didn't you? There there were no problems when you left. No, no, there were no problems. I mean, after a lot of uh, talking and and convincing um, that you know I would I would visit often I would uh, con- I would call them um, every week if I could um, I would help my family financially because I come from uh, a modest family and uh, most importantly I would stay true to myself and to the values I was raised on uh, and that's how my family was convinced and they could see that you know. Um, first year, second year of coming to live and work in London, I was still the girl that they sent to Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And your mother must have been a very strong woman, but you said that uh, she regretted not knowing how to read and write, but which language are you talking about? You're talking about French, which is foreign, isn't it? I mean, she she could communicate effectively in Arabic and any local dialect. Well, she could communicate in the local dialect, but my mom never went to school. My yes. mom uh, grew up in uh, 1930s Tunisia under colonial yes. French colonial rule, where yes. education of girls uh, was was very rare, very very rare. Uh, her family did not send her to school. Uh, mm. um, only my father went to a Quranic school, and that was it. Even he did not go to school himself. So, but my mom was, like you said, was very strong. I come from a very strong line of women. My mother, my grandmother, the only surviving grandparent I knew, uh, they were very strong and resilient women and intelligent on top of that. My mom could understand and could memorize words from French and Italian that she would have heard only once and she could memorize everything when I was revising for my exams and I would forget something. My mom would be listening in the background and she would remind me, you know, so that's how intelligent she was. Um, but since independence, you know, um, we had a, a very forward thinking um, president. You can even consider him radical president by the standards of, you know, um, what was Habib, Habib Bourguiba. Habib Bourguiba, 1956. Uh, yes. From what was going around Tunisia in North Africa and further afield in the Arab world. He was, um, you know, he was uh, very wise and very sensible. And he had a, he had a vision for his country. Um, he invested in the education of not just boys, but girls as well. Um, uh, he, he gave equal rights to uh, women in, in the workplace, in the pay, in pay, and even for when asking for divorce. It was not a man's prerogative anymore under him. Um, you know, he wanted and he paid, you know, surprise visits to their villages, faraway villages and rural areas to, uh, to, to see for himself where the fathers were sending their girls to, to school, uh, like they were sending their boys. Um, and if they were not, if they were caught, you know, the, 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 the sentence, the, the punishment would be quite mm. heavy. So uh, that's, that's the Tunisia I grew up in. Um, and that's, that's what I, that's what I knew. 
um, most women, my, most girls of my generation, you know, that's what we, that's the convention that we knew, you know. Uh, we didn't know anything different. You've lived longer in the West, in the UK, than in Tunisia. How do you then relate to this uh, relationship with, with your country, your home country, Tunisia? How, how, how are you viewed? How are you uh, welcomed or not welcomed? I am, I am welcome, no problem. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I follow as a journalist and as a Tunisian, I follow um, closely what goes on back home. Um, I am interviewed regularly by the media there and the media in the diaspora in Europe and in other places uh, about events back home. Uh, my connection with the country has not changed. I mean, um, I'm, I'm, when I am in Tunisia, I'm very Tunisian. I'm very, very Tunisian. But um, in everything I do, but I bring what I have learned from my life in the UK, in my behaviors, in my everyday behaviors. And I try, you know, with the, with the closest people to me, my relatives, my friends, my immediate family, you know, to, to raise their awareness about, you know, certain behaviors, especially now with the pandemic, you know, right. they, they need to be extra careful with the pandemic uh, about, you know, the need to queue in public places, uh, the need to, you know, alert. If you are visiting someone, you give, you have to give them notice, you know. Um, I like the spontaneity, you know, with, right. with which and the warmth and the friendliness of Tunisians and all that. But there are also other things that I have learned from my life in the UK that, you know, I try to uh, maybe um, bring into the, the behaviors of the Tunisians that I know. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. My guest today is Munia Shaib, a former BBC Arabic service journalist, freelance writer and mentor at the African Leadership Center. Yeah, can you, uh, you were at the BBC for about, what, 27 years? Can 24. You, 24 years, yes. Uh, tell us a bit about your experiences working at the Bush House. When I first joined uh, the Arabic service, most of my colleagues, you know, were much older and more experienced men and women from what is referred to as the Middle East with very few people from regions like the Sudan, the Gulf, and the Maghreb. Uh, mm. There were about more than 100 members of staff at one point, and the Arabic service was the second largest after the World Service in English. Uh, Bush House, you know, was like the United Nations uh, yes. in London. Really, with so many language services, there were about at one point where there were about 42 language services uh, covering almost every corner of the globe. It was it was a bit daunting at the beginning because I was young and it was my first job, my first former Mm -hmm. official job. Uh, But I never felt like a fish out of water. On the contrary, I was, you know, uh, proud to be part of a well-known broadcast, international broadcaster, rubbing shoulders with, you know, people whose voices carried so much weight and credibility and came from so far away. Only a few days before I joined, um, I was naturally friendly, you know, with everyone, uh, willing to learn, happy to learn every day. 
I wanted to excel in everything I did. Um, I worked on the news and current affairs for quite some time, but I really, I mean, uh, sometimes we worked for almost 14 hours a day covering the Second Gulf War, covering the Civil War in Algeria in the, in the early 1990s, covering the two Palestinian Intifada uprisings, mm-hmm. uh, covering elections, international conferences, um, and all sorts, you know. But mm-hmm. after a while, I realized that, you know, the news and current affairs um, are repetitive, um, a bit boring, and in the case of the Arab world, distressing most of the time. So I, I started discovering documentaries and, you know, um, educational programs. And I loved the, those even more because in those I could see that there is more scope for creativity and impact, you know, especially mm-hmm. with educational programs, with documentaries, you know, I traveled, I did, you know, uh, a documentary on African illegal immigration into Europe via Morocco, and I crossed yes. the border between Morocco and Spain. Um, I went to interview uh, immigrants that the Spanish authorities kept in a in a camp or on a on a on a mountain facing the sea, you know, um, in Ceuta. Um, the guards, you know, had ferocious dogs, you know, guarding yes. the place in case any of the immigrants, you know, uh, tried to escape. Um, the the conditions were absolutely inhumane. Six men in one tiny room where they slept, they ate, they went to the toilet, they did everything in that tiny room. You know, it was a first. I I did many firsts. That one, I did a series on uh, people with physical disability. I traveled, you know, to countries like Sudan. I traveled to Morocco and Lebanon. Um, So, yeah, I did a lot of, you know, uh, programs that I am absolutely proud of that made impact. Uh, I moved around. I moved. I went yeah. to African service in English. I worked on Focus on Africa and Network Africa um, uh, where, you know, we we almost set the agenda with Focus on Africa, you know, uh, maybe not on a daily basis, but, you know, frequently this, the agenda I felt was set with a simple phone call from someone, with an interview with someone. I worked in the English uh, uh, arts department. I worked on a program called Outlook, a daily live program. So, and I worked in training. I uh, spent a year training just like I was trained. I delivered training to journalists. Speaking personally, you were married to a Nigerian Pan-Africanist, Dr. Tajuddin uh, Rahim, uh, Rahim, who died tragically. But how, how did that play out in Tunisia, a sub-Saharan African marrying a, a, a North African? Did you encounter any uh, issues regarding the relationship? Yes, of course, because um, my family did not expect me to come to Europe to bring an <laughs> African man. You're supposed to go back with a white man. <laughs> if, if, if I came back with a white man, it would have been, okay, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> you know? the, the, the only thing he needed to do probably was to convert to Islam. And that would, Islam, yes. Yeah. But, to but bring, Tajdim was already a Muslim. Tajdim was already a Muslim. He was a Muslim, so that worked in his favor. But yes. um, I think... 
at the time there were maybe very few, very, very, very few uh, marriages of girls from North Africa to uh, to guys from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, but mainly from Francophone Africa because the la- the language was a common language and it yeah. helped, you know. But to bring someone from Anglophone for Africa, I think was very rare. I was probably the first, you yeah. know, to do such a thing. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, um, my again, my mother in particular, uh, mm-hmm. you know, again, not because, you know, she had any issues with him as such, but because she was aware of what, you know, the extended family would say, the community would say, yes. the whole mm-hmm. of the country would say, you know, about her. She sent her daughter to Europe to come back with an African man. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, um so, but, but, you know, what helped him was, again, like you said, the fact that he was a Muslim, uh, the fact that, you know, even he, he, he managed to go beyond the barriers, the language barriers, you know, he didn't speak yeah. Arabic. So he was, you know, uh, the few words that he learned from the Quran, he greeted my, my parents in the Islamic way. He, yeah. by saying, Salamu Alaikum, he, yeah. He showed a great deal of respect towards my parents. He was, you know, uh, he was very charismatic. Um, He had humor. He brought this massive, positive, happy energy into the family home. So they warmed up to him. And they discovered in no time that he was a larger-than-life personality. And they could see that he was a serious guy, a good guy. So eventually, yeah, they, they came around. Yes, so, 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 so how then are your two daughters coping with three identities, more or less, British, Nigerian, and Tunisian? Haida and Aisha, they're in their 20s now. When yes. they were young, they, you, were, you know, it was, and I think it still is in London, mm. you know, it's either you have English, white English, or Asian, or mixed. And the mixed mm. is mostly either white and and black from Caribbean or black African, you know, yes. for 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 a, for a girl to be mixed North Africa North African and Sub-Saharan Africa is very rare. It's still very very rare. Yes. So uh, when they were little, they felt like they stood out, like they were different from everybody else. Um, they they faced an identity you know issue of mm. very young age with their group. Mm with the with the the culture at home you know where their mom was from north, north africa their dad from uh, from nigeria sub saharan africa uh, you know um the hair looked different the skin color looked different everything mm. the names were different uh, you know friends could not say their names properly Ida was called ida you know yes. Uh, yes. Aisha has always been called aisha mm. <laughs> Uh, but but I I have always tried my best to ingrain, you know, their sense of a sense of pride in them, about yes. uniqueness, about their identity, about the you know everything about them. I always tell them, you are global citizens. You know, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yes. I come from Tunisia. Your dad came from Nigeria. You were born and you grew up in London, uh, you know, but, but you're a global citizen. So you should celebrate that. You should celebrate it and be proud of it. And now today they are. They, they have natural hair. 
They wear yeah. the, um, everything about them natural, and they say their names, pro, you know, um, proudly. Uh, yeah. they, they are they are okay, they are happy in their own skin. Are, are they multilingual or just speak English? Um, yes, Aida she did uh, English literature and Arabic and uh, Middle Eastern studies at university, so she she speaks Arabic. The only thing is that the, the Arabic she learned was the classical Arabic, just like uh, the classical English I learned at university. Yes. <laughs> so when she travels to uh, to an Arab country, uh, she faces a dilemma where she's speaking the Arabic of the Quran, and no one speaks that language. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha understands Arabic. She understands. Uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, we've been to Nigeria, you know, a uh, few times, but yes. Yuba has not been uh, that strong, doesn't, has never had that strong presence uh, for them mm-hmm. um, since they were kids. But, uh, you know, they stay in touch with their family back home, their father, father's family back home in Nigeria. So, so when you left uh, Tunisia in 1987 to join the BBC, yeah, and uh, up to now, uh, were there any regrets, or you fine with with the move you made? I am very happy with the move I made. I am very proud um, and very glad that I have made it because my personality has grown uh, big time. Uh, apart from the name and the career that I made with the BBC, some listeners, you know, I left. I left almost 10 years ago. Uh, yes. Some listeners still think that I am there. They they think I have never left. Um, uh, Apart from all that, you know, I have learned a lot of things. I have traveled the world. I've seen the world. Uh, I've taken initiatives. Uh, my personality has grown big time. And this is the thing that me and you, Desmond, try to do the fellows, you know, the young yes. fellows that we train every year, that we mentor every year, especially yes. ladies, that, you know, they should, they can believe in themselves. They can go beyond the restrictions imposed on them by themselves, by their yes. families, by their culture, by their societies to yes. live lives fully and responsibly to achieve their dreams and even become leaders of their own communities and their own societies. Okay. Uh, Munira Shaib, former BBC Arabic service journalist, freelance writer and mentor at the ALC, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.